0: Come on, Jimmy. Who are
1: you
0: going to fight against when this balloon of yours goes up? Forces of anarchy. Wreckers of law and order. See? Communists. Maoists. Trotskyists. Neo-Trotskyists. Crypto-Trotskyists. Union leaders. Communist union leaders. <laughs> See? Atheists. Agnostics. Long-haired weirdos. Short-haired weirdos. Vandals. Hooligans. The government, hug the government. Love the government. Hug the government. Love the government. So um, hi Liz, thanks for being with us today, and you're going to talk to us about a sort of a variety of themes. I think. Um, firstly, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your uh, background. Um, you kind of work in the intersection between gender studies and linguistics. Or that's your intellectual background. I'm wondering how did you get into that first?
1: Yeah, I had a strange kind of academic trajectory. My graduate work was actually in um, acoustics and biomechanics of speech, Uh so um, that's really what I was trained in, and my my early publications were in that field. Um, When I went to Nottingham Trent, though, obviously I found that I was in more or less a cultural studies department. And I was teaching across the range of linguistics and phonetics courses. And so very gradually, my interests shifted to align with that sort of intellectual context that I was working in very, very happily. Um, And so I became this kind of hybrid um, where I was a linguist, but also really captured by cultural studies um, from very early on in the nineteen nineties, I would say.
0: Mm. So the nineteen
1: nineties that would be sort of a particular
0: moment for this, sort of would like I mean, sort of in the intellectual backdrop of Britain. I mean, you saw the, sort of the Birmingham school was around there, Stuart Hall was doing work. And is was it part of considered innovative at the time to apply the insights from I guess cultural studies to uh, linguistic analysis, or oh, was it even controversial?
1: Linguistic analysis to cultural studies was, yeah, yeah, it 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 was. Um, there really weren't that many people, although discourse was really emerging very, very, very fast. Discourse analysis was merging, emerging very fast. It was far more sort of structurally based than than my work was. Uh, I looking in very fine tuned ways at the structure of language. Um I'd also sort of had a formative time working in the United States, 89 to 91.
0: This was at, was this Berkeley, was it? Or? No,
1: State University of New York. New York, sorry, yeah. Um, but it coincided with the culture wars, mm. when issues of difference, gender and race, um, not so much social class, but that was in there but they were really prevalent in the U.S. Academy. Um, and that really did form me because it was really impossible not to take sides. You, you really were kind of, you know, um, interrogated about about these issues. And um, this is also a context in which I met my partner, who was very much involved with... Um, sort of race and gender. She was um, in African-American studies, mm. um, sorry, African and Latino studies, and also she was chair of women's studies. And so, you know, this was a very formative intellectual relationship.
0: So there seemed to be a lot at stake there, though. I mean, not necessarily in your relationship with your partner, obviously, but in in terms of that precise moment, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's when Bush is in the White House is prior to... The rise of Clinton and sort of new wave or third wave economics. Yeah. How do you compare that moment, and I guess in terms of gender politics, in terms of what we have now? I mean, are we now? I mean, that's the birth of what we now call as identity politics. Are they uh, comparable?
1: Yeah, in, in that um, identity politics has, come under a great deal of criticism more more recently. Um. But also that notion of culture wars is being invoked again. It's almost as if there has been, a, well, there has been a, a rollback of of all that progress, what we thought of as as being sort of understood and progress made, um, is now under assault again. So so things like um, equal opportunities legislation, human rights legislation. Um, things like contextual based admissions processes I don't know if you're familiar with that whole debate where so it, is this like
0: affirmative action in the United States uh...
1: sort of um, affirmative action would be more about um, jobs and hiring mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, where if you have a qualified candidate from a protected um, category then you you have to sort of include. That person on the shortlist, and um, strongly, you know, steered towards hiring that person. Um, but contextually based admissions in in this country is about sort of looking at a student's academic profile in the round, and looking at um, the average achievement of that person's um, high school, mm, where mm. they're coming from, and their postcode, and things like that. Um, and those things are under attack mm. from people who see things like a levels as being absolutely neutral mm.
0: so the culture wars hasn't gone away in the United States from where you are and it's you think it's perhaps being amplified in Britain at the moment
1: yeah fr- from you know the sort of sources that we can only begin to guess at now um, and and this, I think, is also linked to uh, emerging issues of private universities. Um, So, for example, in the United States, as state funding has been cut back to, in some cases, in New York, 10%. Mm. So student fees go up, but also um, private donors step in. So the, um, the Koch brothers... In the United States, mm. right-wing agenda, um, and then you get this pushback against progressive courses in universities and progressive agendas like equal opportunities, affirmative action, and so on.
0: Mm. And the university is as a as a sort of uh, is a is a, a lightning rod, I guess, for all of these has been, always will be. You know, I wonder why. Why, why do you think that is? what is it about uh, university life the type of people you get in universities that uh...
1: you would think that that would diminish wouldn't you as universities become more democratic and by by that i mean more open to mm. more groups more more students um, you would think that that view of them as being sort of rarefied and you know champions of nothing but progressive values at that, mm. that that would, would be, um, you know, less prevalent. But I think it's sustained by certain forces in the media. Uh, and, and it always comes from the right wing. Mm. And, you know, you, you have to question the agenda, Will.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this that that brings me on to, I guess, as a nice sort of segue to what you're... What you're um, I mean, sorry, you started sort of in linguistics and what's... Discourse uh, analysis, I guess, is uh, part yeah, of what you do.
1: That's what I sort of retooled towards. Mm.
0: Well, could you could you maybe explain what discourse analysis is? Because uh, not, not everyone will know. I think
1: in yeah the the, the sort of approach that, that I take to discourse analysis, i.e. Like critical discourse analysis, is looking at um, to see how language structures um, reflect construct amplify prevailing power structures within society and how we can deconstruct that um, and try and make that that visible
0: so I guess Judith Butler would be a, a pivotal figure
1: Norman Fairclough would be a pivotal figure mm-hmm. in critical discourse analysis Judith Butler's view of discourse would be rather different than um, you know, I would be looking at um, language structure, whereas she's looking almost in a, a sort of Foucauldian sense of discourse and discourses mm-hmm. um, that that kind of prevail um, in society.
0: And then that leads to what your current research interest is, which is we're really here to talk about today, which is uh, critical university studies. Now, can you, can you explain what that is? This is a sort of, a, I guess this is a... A new burgeoning field that people are using, I guess, different methodologies to, different methods rather, to look at um, the role, uh, the purpose, the mission of universities, the politics of universities. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And and again, that emphasis on on power structures um, Mm. and um, discourses in the sort of Butlerian, Foucauldian sense of the language used about and within universities. Um, but again, I'm looking at the, the nitty-gritty, um, the actual language structures, the words, the phrases, the collocations that, that occur around um, discourse about universities. So, for example, I've worked on university mission statements mm-hmm. How do they portray students? How do they portray staff? And I'm presuming
0: all of these are really, really different. All the, They're really different across... Every different university is different in terms of their mission statement. No, they're all the same. <laughs> I <was> thinking <laughs> that. Yeah. Absolutely, they're all the same. Well, what, is that, what does that sort of uh, signify for you? That sort of... You know, sort of a, well, I guess a homogeneity of discourse.
1: Exactly, yeah. That everybody is claiming to be world-class and excellent... Um, And, you know, business facing and all these other things that that universities claim they, they want to be. And that's where you see this diversion of values held by university managers versus values probably held by majority of academics who work within them. And that's where you get this sort of imbalance of power if you've got values represented in a mission statement that the majority Mm. of academics wouldn't sign up to, you've got a bit of a problem going on. Because the whole kind of, um, you know, the whole kind of conceit of management is that everybody is working in concert with the vice-chancellor's strategy. I don't think you were there the day that I was called to a training in appraisal. Now, you know... We all have appraisals at Nottingham Trent known as PDCR, Personal Development Contribution Review. And it was thought that um, they needed more people to do the appraising. So I was invited to a training called Appraisal, uh, PDCR for Managers. Of course, I wasn't a manager, but I was very aware that I was being sort of co-opted into this discourse of Mm. management and this... Managerial, per se. It's,
0: it's, it's a different way of speaking. Um,
1: oh
0: yeah, yeah. It's a different way of communicating.
1: And one of the first things that I said, um, you know, I was one of the first people to speak, was, um, you know, let let me please um, just uh, clarify with you that um, our appraisals are based on the university's strategy that it cascades down
0: and, mm. you know,
1: we all uh, channel our efforts along the, I think there was sort of seven platforms of the strategic plan at that time. Mm. And uh, the trainer was sort of nodding very sort of encouragingly. You know, he was somebody who actually seemed to know what they were doing and what they were here for. So I said, can anybody in the room name the seven strategic platforms. There was absolute silence. None of them could name the seven. So I said, "All right, so they're appraising me, and they don't know what the university strategy is. It falls at the first plank, doesn't
0: it? Right. So what's generating this? I don't. I, so I, it was no. it's
1: like it's a conceit. It mm. is just it's smoke and mirrors. It's it's a complete." Um, what, what's the simulacrum?
0: Uh-huh. You uh, it's it's like ver- say simulacrum, like a, yeah. it's a version of what it should
1: be. Yeah. yeah. It's a complete fiction. And um, we are just forced to cite these mm. norms, you know, in a Butlerian sense. We cite this discourse almost to kind of shore up these these boundaries that we don't really know what we're doing. Yeah. We're, we're creating this simulacrum of, of a business that none of us and, believe in.
0: Probably academics, modern day academics are probably a little complicit in their own expectation there, perhaps.
1: Well, we, we haven't done enough to, to fight back against it. But that's because the it's couched in this neoliberal discourse.
0: Okay, so can I just... Which is,
1: yeah, which is incredibly difficult to fight back against.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah, so, um gosh, lots to talk about there. So, I mean, just that that word. I mean, I've done a number of these podcasts now, and that word keeps coming up again and again and again. Um, quite often, uh, I, I get different sort of responses. So I'm going to ask you, what does that? What does that mean? Neoliberalism.
1: It it means the compulsory um, skewing of every human activity, uh, or the sort of the, the reshaping of every human activity to make it into a market, a competition. Everything is financialized, marketized, and that's the only basis for evaluation.
0: Right, so human beings in institutions, this doesn't necessarily need to be a university, I guess, are, well, Foucault says this human entrepreneurs, everyone becomes sort of a human entrepreneur or entrepreneurialized themselves. And this in sort of within the university discourse, how does this manifest itself?
1: It's what's called academic capitalism. Mm. So, you know, capital in terms of, of money, but also um, other forms of symbolic capital as well, um, because neoliberalism actually is a failure is a as a um, economic system but it's been incredibly successful as uh, um, well, in
0: terms of identity and Wendy and, Davis you know.
1: points out in, in cultural terms um, So in in economic terms academics are judged by their grant capture potential mm-hmm. um, So you get academics sure. on on their email signatures you know telling you their their grant and how much to the exact, Pound amount they have they have won in a grant, not what the what the research is about, but mm. the fact that they have got this this money you know that adds to their status as academics.
0: Well, and you think then your sort of claim is within sort of critical university studies is that this neoliberal model is changing universities in perhaps irrevocable ways where I don't know there's the uh, university becoming well more internal, more sort of entrepreneurial, or academics are forced to become more entrepreneurial. Uh, there's a sense that uh, things are becoming governed by metrics and statistics, perhaps.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, the mm. REF, the Research Excellence Framework, um, you know, the big audit of research, was one of the first things to really distort academics' priorities. Um so
0: well, it marked a move. Sorry, Liz, uh, from from sort of scholarship to research. I guess
1: it did. I mean, mm. it certainly incentivized a lot more publication um, and seriously focused research. That's unarguable. But it it sort of incentivised. Um, well, it it disincentivized the kind of curiosity driven. Research which had gone mm. before and um, obviously been very successful in favour of um, following the 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 kinds of um, strategically um, decided upon focuses of research that that universities came up with. So you know, you and I were in one unit of assessment Mm. that had decided that its main focuses were going to be gender, um, trying to think what else, things like immigration Mm. and... um, Yeah,
0: I can't recall what it was, Now, I don't think I was included at the end, yeah.
1: The university is focusing on health, so, you know, if you're interested in you know, absolute neutralisation in phonology—you're
0: out of luck. So Regardless it's of the, how much so that's right. So there's this sense that there's a practices through neoliberalism being put in place, which predetermines what can and cannot be investigated. Which I guess is sits uncomfortably a little, at least, with the sort of the traditional idea of academic freedom.
1: Yeah, and and other academic practices like for example book reviews mm. which are extremely important yeah yeah are neglected in favor of things that are referable mm. um and we've moved beyond referable now
0: yeah. To yeah like different disciplines do different you know like a, a journal article in one discipline yeah. can be good an edited collection piece in an edited collection can be considered bad in another discipline like you know and vice versa we've
1: We've moved now almost entirely to align ourselves with a science model where, Mm. Mm. you know, journal articles are good, books, who cares? Um, But also much more perniciously, things like journal impact factor are really driving where people publish. So whereas, you know, just a few years ago, um, you or I might have thought, oh, do you know what? there's a lot of work coming out in McGregor University Studies. We need a new journal, and we just set up a new journal. We probably think now, oh, maybe not. I should be maybe trying to get into um, high-ranking business journals mm. or mm. high-ranking cultural studies journals mm. uh, or sociology journals that... that uh, and, and so work gets scattered rather than people having a, a home to kind of go and look for that work in. Um, some of that has been succeeded by things like blogs and um, online forums, Facebook and so mm. on, where, where people can still find that home and make sure that you know their work is publicised. Mm. But it's still very, very distorting.
0: Mm, and I guess
1: at this moment
0: in time, I mean... We see things. I mean, I guess what what you're appealing to is a very sort of, well, I, I won't say traditional, but it's uh, it's, uh, and when I say traditional, I don't mean like you know you're talking about setting up a medieval university, you know, but you're 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 saying that's like a good version of university or a good version of teaching, a good version of research, is something that does not necessarily take disruption and innovation as an automatic virtue that's right and what would that look like I wonder do you think for you when it's done well like a good university that works for students that works for for doing scholarship for works doing research
1: um I mean the growth of interdisciplinarity is so important um the government is sort of making a hat tip towards that at the same time as you know these metrical structures are you know, driving mm. people into these very narrowly focused units of assessment, um, it is very difficult to be interdisciplinary at mm. the moment. You don't know where to submit your work so mm. that it gets yeah. Yeah. Credit. So, you know, if if you do cross those boundaries, you risk being overlooked and and punished in some cases by institutions. Mm. You know, being having, having research funds withheld from you. Um, and, you know, just today I was looking at, uh, somebody was tweeting about a fascinating paper on, um, somebody been looking at tattoos, but in the context of how they help women with endometriosis mm-hmm. construct identity. Now, if you said, you know, if you, if you said to a Daily Mail journalist that you were looking at tattoos, this, this would be... You know, why are we funding universities mm. to...
0: To do these sort of vainglorious, narcissistic pet projects, yeah.
1: Yeah, but then somebody picks up on that scholarship and applies it to health research. Mm.
0: And there's, really imp- there's conceivably some very important therapeutic uh, yeah. outcomes on that, yeah.
1: So there was a linguist looking at cultural studies work, mm. um, bringing techniques of discourse analysis, multimodal analysis it's called, to, you know, do this rather revealing research. Um, And, you know, universities have to be freewheeling. They have to have those accidents of meeting up. So Nottingham University some years ago, um, a medieval scholar found herself sitting next to a guy researching antibiotics. Mm. And you know we're running out of antibiotics and they got talking and the medieval scholar said well you know back in in middle ages um they used silver as an antibiotic and he went away and researched it and hey presto they're using silver now as an antibiotic mm. and that emerged from just a chance you know, sitting on the so, same bench eating your sandwiches.
0: So that's sort of real creativity rather than yeah. unthinking innovation, perhaps.
1: But universities don't have spaces for academics to meet anymore. You know, we, we have these these great cathedrals, these atriums, which, mm. I mean, you could shoot a cannon through them. Nobody, nobody uses them. Um, and if you have open spaces, they tend to be, you know, people in the same academic discipline mm. but we don't have a senior common room we don't have social events as mm. a university and we don't have the headspace and to these, make those things happen
0: and this is not like this is sort of these trends you find Liz are found yeah. like, in, in sort of many universities in the United Kingdom yeah uh, in,
1: in the United States in Australia, Australia perhaps in yeah. South Africa you know the critical university studies movement is sort
0: of, you know, uh, across the world. Mm. And it's, um, I mean, I'm wondering why it is is now. I mean, you mentioned sort of managerialism and sort of bureaucracy. I mean, in sort of many, many different institutions. I probably, I I don't think this is necessarily tied just to the university. I mean, you can probably look at other institutions that will see sort of a similar replication of On these the 1980s practices
1: moved to new public management, yeah. right?
0: Yeah, yeah so like in pivotal. you'll see instances of this perhaps in Britain, and say, I mean, the NHS or BBC. the BBC, yeah, sort of schools. very schools, yeah, absolutely. Schools, uh, public institutions, I guess,
1: and it came into universities post Jarrett Report 1985, mm. so this emerged, you know, in. In absolute synchronicity with my career, you know, I came mm. into universities, in Nottingham Trent in nineteen eighty-five, mm. um, and and so this has gradually sort of taken over mm.
0: um, in the in the sort of private sense in, within sort of individual institutions, but in a sort of the neoliberal economic sense globally.
1: Yes. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's absolutely hand in glove, and, and you know the ideology is exactly the same.
0: So we're looking at things like, well, a our, our retreat from the public sphere is the yeah, yeah. and and then for critical universities, so that would suggest that the idea of the university as a public-minded institution is in dem, in, a, in a state of demise, or yeah,
1: if definitely.
0: not necessarily gone.
1: Um, who knows? Mm. I think the you know we're now seeing an invitation for. Um, private institutions to enter the so-called marketplace of universities. Mm. Um,
0: or technological disruptions is probably something that will challenge the um,
1: the environment it's failing to MOOCs have not taken
0: off. Yes, I think I think one of the
1: online courses.
0: That's right. Yeah, I think one of the big sort of providers of MOOCs have uh that's right.
1: I think it's Udacity.
0: I think so. I think I heard that, yeah, that they haven't actually... They've been unsuccessful in their venture, yeah.
1: They're backing out of MOOCs because um, very few of them have made money and they mostly have completion rates around 15%.
0: Yeah, their retention rates are very poor.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, so people just sign up and go, oh, I'm not interested.
1: you know, I think the government would really like... Uh, in classic neoliberal form, to to say to 18-year-olds, right, you know, you are responsible for educating yourselves. Here's an app. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we don't need universities anymore. And that, you know, the discourse now is about the boarding school model of universities to make it seem elitist. The idea that you would go away uh, to university and live. You know, we see that as Mm. as creating a community of scholars who live, work, study together. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, this is now being portrayed by this discourse that immediately evokes notions of, you know, Etonian elitism.
0: That's an interesting analogy, isn't it? Because, I mean, what has universities, I mean, this is no secret, have been, you know, funding huge building projects and putting a lot of money into uh, students' halls and accommodation. And, I mean, this is particularly the case, I think, in the United States, where, uh, I mean, the students get well looked after, I think, you know, Because they're paying all these fees and things like that now and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a Hogwarts model.
1: Well, I I don't know if you saw my last blog post, but um, Nottingham University has actually, on its website, on its recruitment website, got a video of seven ways in which Nottingham University is like Hogwarts. Have you seen
0: this? I have not seen that, no. Um, Okay, how does that work? (laughs) (laughs) I did not know they had a Quidditch team over there, but I bet they probably do, yeah?
1: Yep, yep, they have that as well. And also um, Worcester, I think it was University of Worcester, was talking about, on its open day, Tweets was talking about um, one of their campuses being the most Hogwarts of our campuses so you know I, I was tweeting about the Hogwarts excellence framework you know that'll be the next leap table
0: <laughs> so it's it is so it's, I, I think that's I, that never occurred to me before that it is kind of almost like a simulacrum of uh, of sort of an, an elite public school yeah. you know that, or that's what it's trying to to, to, yeah. to offer and uh, but yeah. but we have those those are the, those institutions are the institutions that allow people to go into government that's right and I mean I think that I would suggest that I mean they want to keep that way they keep it that way I mean you know you know, people who retain status don't want to give it up so easily
1: well that's right and um, yeah I mean it's it's sort of ironic that just as the great university build off has come up with all these hyper modern atriums you know the, the student imagination has been constructed to expect oak paneled uh, <laughs> offices for their professors, you know. Yeah. Um, which is exactly what have been decried by the managers who want mm. to put us in, you know, multi multi occupancy offices and yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they want us to look like uh, Professor Snape or something like that. Yeah. The students expect us to be like that. That's what
1: students are expecting. And of course <laughs> now it's all about meeting the student expectation. And fulfilling their aspirations. And, yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm.
0: That's not, I mean, I don't know, it's difficult that one. I mean, we always wanted to do that though, don't we? We always want to help our students out, you know, and yeah. Of course yeah. Right. yeah. But is, is, has it changed now in terms of, I guess, student as consumer model? Mm.
1: Yes. Mm. Um, I think students don't necessarily regard themselves as primarily consumers, although they certainly are. Mm. Uh, more demanding and you know willing to, to raise mm. their voice
0: I mean it's it is understandable like when I look at my own students you know quite often a refrain is well we're paying for it I mean it's not so, it's something to just say I think you know mm. but I mean in some sense they have this you know they're taking on these huge amounts of debt so it's not an unreasonable question to ask I
1: guess well absolutely I and mean, mm. you know we've we've certainly had to confront that and universities have confronted that in terms of um focusing on teaching and that was that was definitely in chain even before the teaching excellence framework was even thought of. Um, and and that was justified by saying that there had been lamentable teaching standards in universities, for which there was no evidence. In mm. fact there was evidence to the contrary from you know years and years of QAA reports this, again, was just kind of a Trojan horse to bring in metric regulation of teaching because the TEF um, doesn't measure teaching. Nobody goes into the classroom. Nobody um, really asks students about you know, individual classes or courses. Um,
0: Isn't that it, quite an oversight, that? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's an that's understatement. I mean, the basis for it is the National Student Survey, um, retention figures, and increasingly graduate salaries, which are now available through a new e- legislation called the Small Business and Enterprise Act.
0: So the idea is that, for, for people who don't know, grad yeah, graduates are tied to... Uh, specific universities' degrees are tied to particular outcomes uh, yeah. in terms of...
1: Well, outcomes um, is a shifting signifier, mm. Um is actually the subject of my next piece on Martin McQuillan's blog because it, it can mean, you know, student satisfaction. It can mean, um, graduation rates. Uh, it can mean employment, uh, or it can mean, um, a high salary, any of those things and, and plenty more actually.
0: All oh, that a solid outcomes. melts into air. Yeah. yeah.
1: They are all discursively linked to, to outcomes. um, but, you know, it has absolutely nothing to do with teaching. But what it does is install a new regulation so that um, government control over universities I- and behavioural um, change is ever more incentivised. Um, well, so,
0: so what's the nudge the nudge theory and stuff like that? Yeah, you...
1: the nudge theory is, is that if you... Um, if you make universities responsible for their graduate salaries and you can actually through this new legislation now tie you know graduate jim jones from Mm. x university on x course has had this amount of student loan and he's managed to pay back Mm -hmm. x X amount of it uh, and you can have his tax data to show that, and the whole lot is kind of whipsawed together mm. to create, you know, a profile of a successful university and course in terms mm. of that outcome.
0: Does that terrify you?
1: Yes, it does. It doesn't terrify me. I'm out of university. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, that, not my problem.
0: That sort of invasion of privacy. Absolutely.
1: Yes, I mean, it's a huge invasion of privacy, um and not just that, but you know, the the digital footprint that students. That, that universities are capturing of their students through things like learning mm. analytics dashboards. Well, this is
0: sort of big data finally comes to university, yeah.
1: Whoa, I mean, that's, that's, that really is an invasion and we don't know where that might lead.
0: Okay, so, I mean, we've talked a lot about sort of the state of university. we talked about sort of your critical, uh, sort of this sort of research, um, critical universities, I guess a research method or a... Or a a, ty- a new type of discourse, uh, which is really sort of quite exciting, I guess, because it's, 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 it's you know, it's not just about the university. It's about all, it's effectively a question about the type of society we want to have and the type of politics we want to follow and talks about all of the issues. So in that regard, then I'm, 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 I'm you know, you're someone who was in the university for a long time, as you said yourself, you sort of, uh, uh, I'm not going to put a number in it. You said uh, 31 years. 31 years okay. You said yeah, yeah, yeah. 31 years. So you've seen you've you've had a, a good sample of the, the historical development of sort of university life, the types of students. And uh, what I'm interested in is I'm um, between when you started even when you were in the United States in New York in the early 90s when you look at sort of um sort of the political issues which are affecting the university now I'm wondering what your take on it is Uh, like so for example you know you have uh, a couple of years ago someone Jermaine Greer was uh, no platformed right Um, Jermaine Greer a feminist icon I think that's fair to say Mm -hmm. and uh, she's being no platformed for um, well for her her remarks she's historically made about uh, transgendered people right do so. How do you see that sort of political intervention on behalf of students? Is that something you welcome?
1: Um, who's the students?
0: The students, I guess. Uh, I think are are, are are interventions of that kind.
1: I think it it, it shows mm. that students are thinking, and mm. that's a, a very positive. Shows thing. they care, yeah. Um, no platforming has been going on since the nineteen seventies, so this is not. A new development, um, and it was it was first invoked against you know um, fascist groups such as the um, gosh I can't remember their names now back in the seventies. That's probably
0: for the best. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but but you know fascist groups, which historically do make their inroads into universities and capture the imaginations of young people. And we see that happening in the United States. Um, that's very different from conservative students. Mm. I think students do need to be open to intellectual challenge. And, you know, Sir Michael Barber in the Times Higher this week has made his you know stake to that on that issue. And uh, nobody, nobody would really disagree with that. But at the same time, um, you know, as as somebody who sort of came of age with with identity politics and somewhat formed by identity politics, you are aware that historically, not everybody had the same seat at the table. Universities, you know, had a discourse of letting people in, Mm. rather than you know everybody has the same degree of entitlement.
0: Sort of almost Victorian, that isn't it? Sort of sort of form of patronage.
1: And you know, at the same time, the government is demanding equality of outcome. Another kind of outcome this time for um, different BME groups. So um, black minority ethnic achievement in terms of first two ones is lower than white students mm. or Asian students. And the government quite rightly is asking why and what universities can do to address that. Well, you know, to address that, everybody has to feel comfortable at the university. And it, is a, it isn't just about being included. It's not just being told that you have a right to go to university it's about being part of um,
0: a community, or... a, a
1: community. But um, you can't just admit two or three black students like Oxford does and say, "Look, there we are." You know, yes, you you you've got here on merit. Good for you. They're not going to feel comfortable necessarily. Some may. But they are still going to feel that this is, they're surrounded by white people who come from perhaps very different circumstances who don't share a lot of their perspectives and life experience. Mm -hmm. Um, They may be subjected to racist jokes or stereotyping and that has a psychological impact. Um, And the same for gay and lesbian students, you've got people like Nick Hillman at the Higher Education Policy Institute talking about, you know, we have to make sure gay and lesbian students do as well as everybody else. And at the same time, conservative commentators will say, no safe spaces. Well, you know, you are going to feel under psychological assault unless you can Mm -hmm. go to work, go to study, um, and know that you're not going to have to defend your very right to being on a daily basis. Mm. And I know how important that was for me, that I could go to work. And I did feel I could go to work at Nottingham Trent on a daily basis. And I wasn't going to, you know, have people assaulting my identity. I'm sure people did make jokes, but Mm. it was behind my back. I didn't know about it. (laughs) That was very, very good of them. (laughs) but you know I, and i didn't i didn't feel under assault from students either um, and that was really important and and i did feel that the university was a safe space for me yeah and that was really really important because i d- certainly didn't feel that necessarily outside in the rest of the world
0: yeah. so the university was a, a place of refuge in a way which it might was. be a more yeah. constructive way of
1: in terms of identification, yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> in terms of being an academic it was a nightmare. Yeah.
0: But in terms of yeah, I mean uh, in terms of constructing I mean, safe space is a word of the right basically to 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 criticise students it's, it's and caricature them, yeah. It isn't, it
1: isn't. I mean, you know, I've actually seen labels on on, on doors in in the United States saying, you know, this 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 office is a safe mm. space for lesbian gay students or you know, whoever. Mm. Um, indicating that this was somewhere that if people did feel that they were under psychological assault or that they had had an incident of um, discrimination, that they mm. could go to that space and talk about it, you know, fearlessly. And yeah. that is really important. And I, I don't think we're constructing a generation of, of snowflakes. Um, you know, let me tell you about a snowflake student, um You know, somebody who wouldn't have gone to university without a state benefit, state grant to to accompany her, um, never had to work during term, would have fallen apart if she had, um, had all her bus fares and train fares paid, that's a snowflake. Mm. You know, I'm seeing students having to work 20, 30 hours a week, perhaps take care of siblings, all kinds of family responsibilities, mm. huge, huge
0: anxiety issues at the moment Plus emerging after this. Yeah. Plus debt, yeah. yeah.
1: So you know, I you know, tip my hat to to this generation of students. No way are they are they mm. snowflakes. That that really is mm. um,
0: alarming. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of different issues going on there I mean sort of the no platforming issue is you have to kind of disentangle these in some sense the no platforming issue is a is a is a is a is a, is a, is a sort of an issue about questions of free speech and sort of the limitations of what people can express and debate and the safe space thing is about uh, I guess as you say well helping people who need it
1: they are linked because mm. you know if, if you are a trans student and you you know that somebody like Milo, what's-his-face? Yiannopoulos. Yiannopoulos. is going to be invited to speak. Hmm. Um, you know, just a professional contrarian, somebody who enjoys going around um, and sort of dropping these ideological incendiaries um uh, targeting trans students mm. in the audience and making mm. them feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's that's the, unacceptable.
0: I think the thing about a figure like him—he's sort of a professional provocateur, as you say. He's—I mean, far for I guess people in the, if I can say, heteronormative community, he's profoundly tedious. But if you're someone who's you know got a, if you've got from a trans background or if you've got uh, if you are a trans person, then that's really alarming
1: um, it is and, and you know coming back to Germaine Greer she's hmm. you know from a, a feminist point of view that thinks that trans women are not real women because hmm. they haven't experienced childbirth and menstruation and possibly grown up with, with you know gender oppression although they will have grown up with a kind of gender oppression that she can only guess at um, but then you know there was a case a couple of weeks ago of Um, a medical academic who wanted to talk about um, actual data on the number of of people who've gone through um, gender reassignment Mm. who then subsequently developed mental health problems and regrets. And allegedly, I don't know, I can't remember the details, was prevented from speaking. That's a different order of... um, Issue to me, you know, you're not addressing necessarily um, a trans community. You you have data um, which you wish to report on. It's not um, uh, a point of view which has come from a um, a place of bigotry, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. So. You, I mean, I guess these these. So, in effect, you're saying that these are not new issues; that they have sort of sort of a long sort of historical roots. You know, the labelling of them, perhaps, in sort of a discourse in, is that they are sort of new, and this is a new emergent thing, and students are being very, very, um, you know, well, was the, the 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 word snowflake is very very delicate and overly sensitive,
1: yeah, yeah. to 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 so called microaggressions which, you know, are, are very real things when, when you are a minority.
0: Well, well, I mean, the whole point about microaggressions is that they're cumulative, the effect is cumulative. Exactly. Yeah. It's something like gaslighting or something, you know.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, university senior managers have been delinquent and deficient in, in not um, creating forums where students can Vent and address these issues. Mm. Um, they are so separated from not just the staff but the student body. So, for example, when I when I brought to light the fact that women students at Nottingham Trent uh, were really experiencing a very very hostile, intimidatory sexual environment.
0: Yeah, I remember you speaking to me about this. It was like yeah. sort of the discourse of, um, of banter and all those kind of things. Yeah,
1: it was it was way worse. Than yeah. Um, This was very, very unwelcome to senior management when I wanted them to address this. Um, It took me several months to even get a meeting together with women students uh, and senior managers to to address this.
0: And these trends are sector-wide, as they say? They're
1: sector-wide. And Mm. I think, you know, if vice-chancellors actually... And senior managers and heads of departments actually talked to students and worked together to how we're going to address this. You know, this is an institution that embraces free speech. That has to be central. But when does free speech become hate speech, become unlawful? And, you know, the, the talk then is educational about, you know, what do we have to defend? What is our responsibility to defend free speech? to listen to the other side, to take on board their criticisms, to respond. And this is how we all develop as academics. But how can we do that in an institution which respects everybody's rights to be? And that's that's the way forward.
0: Okay, so I think maybe I'll just ask one more question. I mean, in a sort of... A Impossible question to answer, but right now, so we've talked about uh, sort of critical res- uh, university studies, we've talked about the state of the university, we've talked about sort of some of the sort of the pressing issues that typify sort of university life now for your, your, your average student. I mean, what do you think is the biggest challenges for the university in the future or moving to the, you know, moving into future years? I think I mean, is it technology? It's... Is this, sorry oh. to be a leading question, but yeah.
1: Well, I, th- I think in Great Britain, frankly, the, big, the biggest challenge looming is one of deregulation. You know, it's worked so well for the banks, let's try it on universities. Um,
0: so you're talking about long-term uh, economic uh, defunding, basically.
1: It, we're working our way towards that, um, although that hasn't happened yet. But with the rise of private providers, and fewer, um, fewer hoops for them to jump through before they become um, accredited and granted degree-awarding powers. We really risk um, the reputation of the UK sector as a whole. So, for example, did you read a couple of weeks ago that um, Gary Neville and the Manchester United Yes, I did. I did see
0: that. That's an interesting little moment, isn't it? What do you think of that?
1: It's appalling. They are setting up something called the University Academy ninety two.
0: Um, yeah, so this is science. Was, I've I've only read about it in the Times Higher Educational Supplement. I think it was. Yeah, really cool. this is a vocational university.
1: Well, they are expecting to award degrees in sport, business, um, and they're also. Um, Interested in developing character, mm. and I mean, whatever that's mm. that's fine, but they're using straight away the university title, which is a protected title granted only by the um, privy privy council, mm. I think, um, and apparently, you know, nobody is doing anything about this. Nobody is calling them out for false advertising whereas universities are being called out for their false advertising so what was it um reading um, a couple of weeks ago called out for um saying they were in the top two percent of universities Mm. and they were forced to back down on that you know plymouth has, has come into the same kind of criticism coventry same again um and yet, this is going by with with no intervention from the um, what is it? The consumer protection agency, uh, and you know. So you think that's that there is a
0: danger of a hollowing out of
1: absolutely. Oh, I mean, it, it's the university and it, it is it is um, intentional, and it's you know happening ever ever faster, and. You know, we come back to my point about, you know, the the government wanting to, uh, you know, responsivise individuals for their own education. You know, here are all these, you know, small, private um, institutions that you can go to, or you can go online for a MOOC, um, and somehow you're supposed to qualify yourself for uh, the
0: job um, that you want to do so politically that then well, I'll end on this I mean that does beg the question is what is the what is the type of university you want to see I mean in terms of yeah I know I mean in terms of sort of I don't know I mean I know sort of you know sort of a democratic university is something you're very think very important yeah. uh, universities that provides the space of resistance to sort of um, oppressive practices
1: universities are Things that work best when they're allowed to evolve and be driven by the people who work and study within them. So, yes, we have to have those democratic governance structures. People will always follow their curiosity. Um, Teaching and learning Mm. evolves. You know, you you can't just kind of import the the latest teaching um, for the latest job um, because it will always be the Mm. job. 10 years ago it's not the job of tomorrow so Mm. you know you equip students with the ability to think the ability to learn the ability to question and those things are done brilliantly by universities and they have been for hundreds of years i have every confidence in universities standing up for themselves they will be around but they're gonna have to fight it
0: i think that's a brilliant place to end thank you liz Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by El Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.